Look this morning together at Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah 9. We will look at a very familiar verse in the prophecy of Isaiah. Verse 6. Our key words for our worshipers in training are incarnation, hope, and Messiah. The title of this morning's sermon is The Hope of the Universe. It doesn't matter what your age is, what your size is, whether you are male or female, what the color of your skin is, where you were born or where you live. It doesn't matter the language you speak, how much money you have or don't have. And while the circumstances of our lives may lead us differently, eventually we are all brought to the same place. Without fail, everyone who has ever lived since the fall of mankind, and that is all of us, have asked the very same question that everything in our soul deeply and desperately longs to know. The philosophers all sought to answer it. The religions of the world all seek to give a response to it. And I think it can be reasonably argued that every pursuit in our life is for the purpose of responding to this one question. And here it is. Where can hope be found? You see, God created all things, and in the beginning He placed the first man and the first woman in the garden. And as He looked at all that He had created, He said it was good. And in fact, in the end, declared it was all very good. Adam walked with God in perfect union. He enjoyed unhindered fellowship with him until Eve was tempted by the serpent to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, offering it to her husband Adam, who also ate when he was strictly forbidden from doing so by God. Satan's offer to be like God was too enticing. And the prospect of having knowledge like God, too alluring. And so Adam and Eve followed Satan. And as a result, all of mankind was thrust into the darkness of sin and death. And ever since then, all creation has groaned in the eager longing and expectation for the day of final restoration. All of creation has cried out, where can hope be found? And all the pursuits of man since then have been an attempt at finding hope, restoring hope, living with some kind of hope of something greater than all that fails us in this life. Our relationships fail. Our stuff never provides the fullness of satisfaction we had first anticipated. Our money never gets us as far as we ever thought it would. And all that we wanted to do fails to deliver all that it promised. And so we live in a constant state of wanting to know and seeking to find out where can hope be found. 
And this morning we're here to proclaim and to reflect and to rejoice that at a specific moment in time, in one place, in a very unremarkable place, in a small Palestinian town, the hope of the universe rested. Not on the shoulders of some great and mighty king, not in the upper sanctuary of some great place, but on the shoulders of a small baby in a stable one night in Bethlehem. The Christian story in the Bible declares that shocking and important and history-changing truth, that hope is a man. And we see it prophesied far before it ever took place. In Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, we read, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Hope is a man. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Now, knowing what you know about yourself, you cannot possibly be serious and think that hope can be found in yourself. Other than God, nobody ever truly knows their own heart. But what we can and do know of it would be shocking to those around us, would it not? If every passion and every lust and every thought and intention of your heart was displayed for all the world to see, you would be overwhelmed with shame and grief. And in the same way, you can't be serious knowing what you know about the thoughts and intentions of those around you and their flawed actions and think that hope could ever be found in mankind. Everything that man has sought his hope in throughout the history of mankind has failed. Everything except for one. The man on whose shoulders hope really does rest, without whom there really is no hope at all. The words of Isaiah 9 were spoken in a very dark day for the people of God. Politically, things were very difficult. Socially, the culture and community was in complete disarray. Morally, there was significant decay. God constantly railed against the people because although they were content to continue various external religious observances, their hearts were very far from God. He wasn't satisfied with their religiosity. He wanted their hearts but very few who were faithful were to be found. The people of Israel knew what God had promised through the covenants with his people. Most prominent at this point would have been God's covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It says this, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, this is God speaking to David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
So no doubt, in the darkness of that time, the people would be tempted to wonder, will the promise of God really come true? Will the line of David continue to exist? Maybe it's all over. Maybe he's forgotten about us. Maybe God changed his mind and will let all of us just pass away into decay. How can it get any worse than it is right now? Maybe this is it. The people of Israel at that point were almost completely indiscernible when compared to the surrounding nations. A people who were called to be set apart and holy looked exactly like the world. It was a very dark situation in a very dark day. And yet it's in this moment. It's in the midst of doubt and confusion and sin and corruption and decay that these glorious words are spoken through the prophet Isaiah. And these were words that weren't simply meant to give hope to a people who were hurting, but they were words to give hope to everyone who has ever cried, where can hope be found? This is a glorious prophecy about a child, not just any child, He was certainly a human baby, just like us when we were born, but he was also the son of God. But notice that the text here says that a child was born. And that statement is very important. Yes, Jesus was the son of God. Yes, we affirm that Jesus, in fact, is God, fully divine. But on that day that Isaiah prophesied about, that happened nearly 600 years later in Bethlehem, a child was born, not God. You understand the difference? God is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. And Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, has existed eternally in heaven. Now, prior to the incarnation... Prior to Jesus' taking on of human flesh, he did not have a bodily form. But he existed eternally as God. The great truth is echoed throughout the scriptures, perhaps most famously in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. This is Jesus, eternal So yes, Jesus became human in the virgin womb of Mary, and he was born as a child. But Jesus did not become God at his birth, and God wasn't born. Jesus, as God, has existed eternally, and his birth took on a new nature, becoming 100% human, while simultaneously remaining 100% divine. This is why Isaiah says a child is born and a son was given. The son of God was given from eternal heaven. The apostle Paul writes in Philippians 2 that Jesus emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant being born into the likeness of men. And he sets aside his heavenly dwelling. And his highly exalted state as the great king and creator of all things. He 
puts it aside and takes on the form of a man for men. It was this prophecy of Isaiah that reminded the Israelites of that promise that they had so frequently heard. A Messiah was coming and God would do something amazing to deal with the helplessness of the world as a result of sin. You see, God's plan wasn't to send an answer simply in the form of words. He had already delivered his great promise. He wasn't simply adding to their theological knowledge. He wasn't simply providing a system of redemption. But he was coming himself. Emmanuel. God with us. God among us. God as us. He was coming because he is the only hope in a broken world. And that's the great truth of this prophetic word. He comes. And that's why we hear of the angels and the star and the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh and years of celebration because it's good and right to rejoice and for us to celebrate that God came because there was no other hope to be found. And for this reason, I agree with the great prince of preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He reminds us that this celebration of Christmas is in no way holy or sacred because only the Lord's day of each week holds that designation and yet says, I wish there were 10 or a dozen or 20 Christmas days in the year, not for all the festivities and adornments and activities that surround the tradition but that we might be reminded and have opportunity again and again and again to proclaim to all that will hear that God came to dwell with us. Obviously, Spurgeon's point and mine as well is this. We must always be reminded of this great day. This great reality of God becoming flesh, that he could uphold the covenant of grace by living a perfect law-fulfilling life, dying a sinner's death, receiving the full wrath of the Father for sinners like us, being buried for three days to be resurrected from the dead, that he would ascend to heaven and reclaim his throne as the great eternal Savior of the world. Without Christ, the terms for eternal life are unfulfilled and our condemnation is sure. So brothers and sisters, I beg of all of us that we not reserve reflection on the birth of Jesus for one day each year. Spend 365 days of each year reflecting on the great Emmanuel. He is our only hope. He is the hope of the universe. He is a king above all kings. Isaiah says, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And as we consider Jesus as a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, laying in a manger, we remember what we heard in our scripture reading this morning. The king of the day, Herod, recognized that in what he had heard, 
his reign was threatened. He assumed that the birth of a child was encroaching on his throne and he saw fit to kill all of the male children under two years old in Bethlehem and in all that region. The mothers of the land were inconsolable. Consider it. We read it. We move beyond it. Consider their grief. Brothers and sisters, in our nation today, we consider the grief of mothers only a few states away because very recently they've lost their children. Consider a day when the king of the land sweeps through an entire region and has put to death every male child under two years old. It's nearly incomprehensible. It grieves our hearts to think to consider our own children in that place. Why? Because one man, a heart full of pride and a desire to be seen as great and noble and mighty, sought to defend what he could not. Because we know from God's word that in that manger was one who would shoulder the government and his rule would not be over a land, would not be over a region, but would be over all things forever. Everything would be under his feet and nothing could stop it. And here's why this is most important to you. If you are a Christian, all the promises of God are only as good as the extent of his power to bring them to fruition If this king isn't sovereign, if this king doesn't rule over all things, if this king does not hold power over the hearts of every other king, how will you and I know in every situation and every circumstance that hope certainly can be found? But you see, knowing that the government is upon his shoulder, I know that wherever I go, And in whatever circumstance I am left to encounter, this king rules. And because he has power, he has the ability to deliver on all that he has promised to you and to me. Proverbs 21.1 tells us, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Is that not comforting to know? You see, you cannot run far enough. You cannot dig deep enough. You cannot ascend high enough to escape the rule of the great king of the universe. All of the power and all of the authority rests upon his shoulder and praise be to God that he is not a tyrannical king, that he is not a hateful king, that he is not a king who delights in destruction. He is a king who offers eternal hope to mankind. He is a king who will make all things new. He is the only king who will not fail and who will not cease to rule. This king is the answer to every question and hope is in him. And there is always hope to be found in him because it rests in his eternal hands. 
the hands of him who rules every location and every trial and every disappointment and every joy and every satisfaction you will ever find yourself in. He is the king of kings and all authority and all power of the universe rests upon his shoulder. How is that for hope? We know this king is Jesus. But before his name was known, the prophet Isaiah described exactly who he was and what he would be. He names the king with various titles. Now, as we look at each of these titles, I want us to see that each of them corresponds to the damage that sin does to us. Where sin so easily intrudes in our lives and begins to corrode and decay our hope, this child who was born, this son who was given, this king who would forever reign, restores all hope and meets all of our sin. That righteousness might forever reign. So let's look at each of these titles that is given. First, we see wonderful counselor. We have received in Jesus a counselor for our foolishness. Perhaps we might wonder why it is that we would ever want a counselor. Why should that get us excited? The undeniable fact of the matter is this. Sin reduces each and every one of us to fools. Just think of your very own life and your very own sins. How often in your most honest moments have you come to realize that your sin is nothing more than utter foolishness? Or when we see someone blow up in anger at something petty and meaningless, or when we listen to people talk to their children or their spouse, or when we see young men fighting over fleeting things, we are so quick to call them foolish. And what a good word for it. But how often do we recognize in our own hearts that every time we sin, we commit an act of betrayal from wisdom and we embrace foolishness. This is a repetitive theme throughout the book of Proverbs. Sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness is foolishness. Now, parents, I really hope that when you are disciplining your children, that you are taking the time to explain to them wisdom versus foolishness and how you are disciplining them in a way that is intended by God to instill wisdom, to drive out foolishness from their hearts by the counsel of God. This is what we all need, isn't it? Our sin is foolishness, and it's one of the tragedies that has made the world inside out and upside down. Think of Genesis 1 again. There was one single voice of moral authority in the garden. It was God's voice. There was no reason for Adam and Eve to ever wonder if all that they were hearing was true or if they could believe that what they heard was the right thing. Because there was only one counselor and it was he who created and sustained all things. But then in a moment, 
another counselor enters the picture. And the floodgates are open to hundreds and thousands of counselors vying for your attention, vying for your allegiance, and vying for your every thought. It's nearly impossible to not be confused. Think of all the counselors in the world that want your ear. Advertisers, false religions, Hollywood, politicians, the media, you name it. Everywhere you turn, there's another counselor seeking to enter into your heart and to direct your steps down a wide, well-worn path. The Apostle Paul reminds us that wisdom isn't first from an outline or a book. Wisdom, like hope, is a person. The one who came, the Messiah who was prophesied about and born in a stable, he is the source of all that is wise and faithful and true. It is he alone who will give you discernment in his word that you can be sure of what is true. Be thankful for our wonderful counselor. If you have met with him, you have met with truth. Second, we see that we shall receive a mighty God. We shall receive power in our weakness. Think about what sin does to us. It cripples us. It makes us weak. It makes us feel completely unable to stand and walk in faithfulness before the Lord. Now, maybe I'm odd, but I assume all of us have had sinful experiences in our lives when we feel so profoundly the weight of our sin that the thought of turning to God in repentance, to call out to God for restoration in peace, is a devastating thought. We know full well that he saw our sin. We know that he knows our hearts. But we just feel so crushed under the thought of having to deal with God in that moment. Now, all of us aren't weak in the same ways. But I assure you that all of us are weak. We all have moments in our Christian lives when we intend to do what's right. But then when the opportunity arises, we do what's wrong instead. We have times when we think, I'm not going to say it. But then we say it. We have moments when we've committed in our hearts that we're not going to be angry, but then all of a sudden, everything in us is pulling and pushing because we know we're getting ready to explode. We have times when we are dead set. I will not lust but then images begin to form in our minds and in our hearts. We have times when we know that we shouldn't envy, and yet deep in our hearts it exists. We have times when we are shockingly proud, when we are scarily self-focused. There are many times when claiming to be worshipers of God, we instead pursue our idols. Is it not clear to us that we need a mighty God? We need to be rescued from us. I need help. You need help. We need power in our weakness. And we need power that we can never provide. 
And we've proven it time and time and time again. You know, whenever I think of 1 Corinthians 13 and what the Apostle Paul tells us about love, true biblical love as defined by God, I realize how much I don't know how to love. Patient, kind, does not envy, does not boast, is not arrogant or rude, does not insist on its own way, is not irritable or resentful, does not rejoice at wrongdoings, rejoices with truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Wow. I'm so easily reminded how weak and temporary and shifting my heart is. It has to be my constant prayer. Oh God, please come to me in your strength and help me to love as you love. And if you are honest, you will admit that your life is a testimony to a need for strength that you do not have. We all have a need for strength from our mighty God because Jesus is our power in weakness. We see too that the prophet Isaiah says he will be an everlasting father. We need love in our alienation. Now, it's interesting that Isaiah refers to Jesus as an everlasting father because that's the language that is typically associated with God the Father, not Jesus the Son. But this is a descriptive title that explains how Jesus comes to us and how we are associating ourselves with him in our sin. What does sin do? It does a terribly disastrous thing. It alienates me from God. One of the saddest moments in the garden was when God approached Adam and Eve. And what were they doing? They were hiding. I hope you recognize that that moment, as we read that every time, it should really upset us. These were creatures created by God in his image for God, made for relationship with God. Their very identity as image bearers of God was to be connected with love and worship of God. We were made for God. But then to find them hiding in fear of him. We must recognize that in that moment something horrible happened. Something has been broken and sin has forever alienated men from God. And as I say that, friends, I recognize that some of you are here this morning who assume that you're a good person. That you have good works to show God. That he will be pleased with you. Or some meritorious intention that you feel satisfied with that you can bring before God. The Bible is clear. You're not good. None is good but God alone. None is righteous. Not one. Every intention of your heart is tied to sin and evil. You remain dead in your transgressions and sins. And unless you repent of your sin and believe the gospel, you are condemned already. You are alienated from God. 
And if you are to stand before God as judge and be pardoned from guilt, I assure you it's not because of anything that you've done or for any reason that you will be able to provide. If Jesus Christ is not your source of truth and your wonderful counselor, your mighty God, your everlasting Father, you are in grave danger. But there is a blessed hope for you. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 may seem odd. It says that God is forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty. It seems like a contradiction. It is true, and I believe with all of my heart that it is that God does not clear the guilty of their sin. And I hope, if you do not know Christ this morning, that everything within you is asking, well then, what must I do to be saved? Because your sins will not go unpunished. The sins of every man everywhere will be punished. And according to the word of God, many in this world who have assumed that their goodness was enough to present before God will be cast into hell where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Where the fire is not quenched, where the worm will not die. Eternally under the wrath of God. For others, the sin has been paid for. We've recognized how short we've fallen from what God requires. We've been made aware by God, the Holy Spirit, of the true condition of our heart that has no goodness within it, but actually evil. You, friend, you know that you do not have a right standing before God because you know that you have blasphemed him. You have idolized many things above him. You have rejected his people. You have lied, stolen, lusted after people you're not married to. You've coveted the things of this world and have broken the law of God and stand guilty and condemned. But you who do not know Christ, take your dirty, filthy hands and place them upon the Lamb of God who is pure and spotless. The hope of the universe who came as a man to take away and bear the sin of the world. Turn to Christ in repentance and faith and all of the acts of defiance of your heart, your lips and your hands. All of these things that you have done, take your dirty, filthy hands and place them on the lamb and wipe them clean in his woolen coat. And that eternal avalanche of God's wrath that is set against you, that you deserve on judgment day, has fallen already on the Lord Jesus Christ on crucifixion day. All of the wrath of God that was reserved for his people has instead fallen on the Savior, on the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, you are alienated from God if you have not repented and placed your faith in Jesus Christ. But we have the best news for you. 
Acknowledging your sin, recognizing your sin, admitting your sin before God, turning from your sin and placing your faith and your trust and your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repenting and believing in the gospel. That God the Father has made God the Son who knew no sin to be sin on behalf of his people that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. That's the hope of the universe. And I pray that God will strike you with a trembling and a fear because of sin in your life if you have not turned in repentance and trusted in the Savior, that you would do that very thing. Oh yes, there's no doubt that sin has alienated us from God. But what an amazing thought that this one who was to come and who has come has done so to make us his children, to wrap us in his arms, to father us in all the beautiful sense of what that means, to protect, to provide, to correct, to mature. If all forsake us, we are not alone because he is with us, our everlasting father. It is impossible with his love upon us to ever be loveless. He is our everlasting father. And lastly, we see that he is the prince of peace. He offers shalom in our brokenness. Another result of our sin Our massive confusion leads to conflict and brokenness. Our universe doesn't operate in the way that it was intended to operate. Now in Hebrew, this word shalom, which we probably all know means peace, really means a whole lot more than the absence of war or conflict. Shalom means that everything is operating the way that it was intended to operate in its right place according to a designed order. The coming of the Prince of Peace means that everything that has been damaged by sin will be restored. How can we forget those great words of the book of Revelation? Behold, I come to make all things new. The Prince of Peace is the hope of the universe, an eternal hope that awaits us when all things are made new. And as his redeemed people, we live and dwell with him forever and ever. You see, hope is not some dreamy wish that something good might happen one day. Christian hope is a great confidence in a guaranteed result because this God-man, Jesus Christ, came to dwell among his people. He actually did come as a wonderful counselor that our foolishness might be driven far, far away. He actually did come as a mighty God that we might have power in our weakness. He actually did come as our everlasting father that we might be loved away from alienation. And he actually did come as the prince of peace that we might receive the great eternal blessing of shalom in our brokenness. 
there is great hope to be found in a man, in the God-man, Jesus Christ. This great hope, we learn in verse 7, has no end. It will be accomplished by the zeal of the Lord. In other words, God has promised, I will make this happen. That child, Jesus, has come to make right what is so woefully wrong in you and in me and in all of creation. You see, your need of hope is not something external. For all of us, our need of hope is internal. It's the terrible damage of sin that resides within each of us that must be repaired. And so the real question is, is there any hope at all for me? And Isaiah responds, yes, 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 there is hope for you. And for me, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. He is the hope of the universe. So believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, because there is eternal hope in him forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, great God. We rejoice in this prophetic word that we know has come true in Jesus Christ. We rejoice in knowing that we have a wonderful counselor, that our foolishness may be no more, that we have a mighty God who gives us power in our weakness, that we have an everlasting Father, that we are no longer alienated, but adopted and loved, that we have a Prince of Peace, that we have inherited the eternal blessing of Shalom. Oh God, we rest in the hope of Christ, our Redeemer, our Maker. What a profound and amazing truth that while you could justly bring each and every one of us to an end, eternally destroyed, that instead you saw fit to call your people out of the darkness into the light and grant us new life as a result of the work and the shed blood of Jesus Christ for us. Our hope doesn't rest in something that we wish might happen. Our hope doesn't rest in something that we pray could happen. Our hope rests in what has happened and we know from your promise will be brought to fulfillment because Jesus Christ lived for us and died for us and has been raised from the dead for us. That we too will be raised from the dead and eternally dwell with Jesus for all the rest of time and eternity.
So God, this morning we pray for those who come and who do not know Jesus Christ, the eternal King and Savior of the world. Rescue them from themselves. Rescue them from your wrath and give them new life in Jesus Christ by your grace and for your glory. Thank you, God. We love you. We praise you. We rejoice in all that you are for us. In Jesus' name, amen.